Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. The catalyst for thinking about it differently was my brother-in-law telling us about this family who sailed around the world. You know, that just literally, just that little sort of idea caught our imagination. I knew that at some point we would be in the middle of the ocean and an issue would come up. But being in the middle of the ocean, there would be nothing that I could do about it. The best question I've ever asked myself in my life is how do I create a business that can run without me? And the moment I asked that question, my brain started thinking in a different way. Put your family first, work out what's the shared narrative of what you want to go and do with your family and uh, put that story front and centre and then reverse engineer your life to meet those goals because there is nothing more important. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Casper Craven. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at Casper Craven. I wanted to have Casper on the show because he did something that I have never, ever heard of anybody doing. He decided to take a two-year trip around the world on a sailboat with his wife and small children. And he did it at a time where he had no money and his relationship with his wife was not great. So in this episode, you're going to learn how the power of a five-year plan to create a trip like that can allow you to create almost anything in your life you want. And Casper, for me, is an example of how to create real fulfillment in your life. And that's exactly why I created the Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to help you get to a level 10 in fulfillment in your life. So look, if you are a hard-charging entrepreneur that is spending way too much time in front of your computer and not living your life the way you want to live it, Come join us in 2019 in Boston, Monaco, and Italy. We are now more than half sold out. I can't believe it. It's happening so quickly. If you want to be a part of this with us, fill out the application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com. We'll jump on a call to see if you're a good fit for the group and if they're a good fit for you. So think of the mastermind as two parts. The first part is the trip. We're heading to Boston. We're going to do things like meeting with Tom Brady's trainer at Gillette Stadium and get a metabolic baseline to help people improve fitness. We're going to go to the south of France where I'll have helicopters waiting for you in Nice to drop you into Monaco. And then we're going to wrap the year up having some fun in Italy doing things like truffle hunting. Now, the second part is what actually goes on inside of the mastermind over those four days. So our group of 25 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of exercises. Or if you need help in figuring out what the next chapter is for you. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out the application. We'll jump on a call and see if you are a great fit. All right, you're going to love this interview with Casper Craven. Really, really good. Let's get right into it. Casper, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. You know what? I am bouncing out of my chair for so many reasons to do this interview (laughs) with you, and we're going to get into all of it in just a bit. I'm holding myself back on asking 20 million questions that I want to ask you. So, so let's just start with thank you for making the time. You are very welcome. It's um, yeah, it's, it's great to be here. It's been, it's been a crazy week. So it's, it's, it's nice just to sort of uh, just stop and just have a, a, a conversation and just share stories. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you too. Awesome. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk first a little bit, if this is okay with you, about your background. Then we're going to talk a little bit about your story and the kind of work that you do. And then we're going to talk about how you've integrated play into your life, sort of post your story. And then we'll wrap up with some quick rapid fire questions. Cool? Sounds awesome. Okay. So I think a good jumping off point to start with is where people come from, because I really believe that that informs who they are. So let's start at the beginning. You were, 
You were born in 73 in Plymouth, England, which is uh, a port city in Devon. And if my geography is correct and my history is correct, that's where the Pilgrim Fathers set sail for America. Did I get that right? Absolutely right. From the Mayflower State. I was born in 72, by the way. I love the fact you've given me, you've made me a year younger. So thank you for that. I'll take that. <laughs> but, yeah, but, you know, so actually, so yes, yeah, so my school was only a few miles from the, um, yeah, from the, from the Mayflower Steps where the Pilgrim Fathers set off. You're exactly right. You know what's so weird about this? My wife is from uh, Manchester, New Hampshire. And we, you know, when I go visit her, uh, sometimes we'll, you know, we'll stop and we'll go to Plymouth Rock. And I, you know, I sort of like look out at the ocean. So, you know, you were on the other side of that ocean, which is just so <laughs> fascinating to me, you know? So can you describe what growing up in, you know, that sort of narrow cobblestone streets was like? Okay, so, well, actually, I grew up in a tiny little fishing village, which was actually about uh, 30 miles outside Plymouth. And um, it was a really small um, community. And um, my, my parents split up when I was quite young. So I was growing up there with my mum. And uh, literally, we, we lived about 200 meters from the beach. And I got to know all the fishermen down there. So um, you know, every morning at 7 o'clock, I'd meet all the fishermen and we'd sit down on the beach. And I was only like sort of 10, 11, 12. And I would just love hearing their stories about how they went out um, fishing. And they were kind of my guides and my mentors, all these sort of you know guys who would spend their whole lives on the sea going out um, fishing. So um, that was uh, you know, a big influence. And um, yeah, that's kind of where things started. Sort of yeah, playing around on beaches and exploring the coastline around Devon and, and in a small boat. And um, yeah, just figuring out how the sea works, and um, yeah, just that. So that was it, basically. That was where I started. So you were you were an entrepreneur, really, right from the get go. Around fourteen, uh, you started your first business, which was uh, essentially catching crabs. And by sixteen, you were exporting those crabs to Spain. Where do you think that entrepreneurial spirit came from at such an early age? So I remember when I was about, uh, well, it's it quite, it's quite, it's quite young, probably about nine or ten. I really wanted to have this sort of uh, this toy, and my mum didn't really have much money at the time. I remember sort of like having a real tantrum around it, real spoiled brat stuff. And then my mum found a way to get the money together for this. And I felt so bad, the sacrifices she made to go and get that for me, that I thought, you know what, I'm never, ever going to be poor. I always want to be able to have enough to provide. So the the first um, you know, time when that really came to play when I was 14, and I found this abandoned fishing boat and uh, repaired it and uh, started going out and catching these uh, crabs and lobsters. And it's funny because I, I used to have this sign, which I put on this um, little shed down by the beach, which said crabs for sale. And, you know, I sold a couple of crabs and then I figured out I've got to do something in a different way. So I got these T-shirts made up, which said crabs for sale, literally on big letters right on the front of it. And I'd be walking around the beach and people would see the T-shirt and they'd start laughing. And the moment they started laughing, then I'd get in conversation. <laughs> and then that's kind of where we really started to sort of, uh, you know, bring a bit of humor into it. And um, yeah, and so yeah, that, that's where it started at 14. And then, yeah, as, as you mentioned, by the time I was 16, I was sending about half a ton of crabs a week off to Spain. You started to figure out marketing uh, with your T-shirt pretty early. Yeah, exactly. And finding the humor and stuff, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> I want to fast forward a little bit to Plymouth College. And mm -hmm. then from Plymouth College, you went off to the University of Southampton and you got a degree in accounting. Why the switch from you know, where you were into accounting? Okay, so... The I, I probably had the best advice and at the same time the worst advice that I've ever had in my life. <laughs> so it was my dad who always said that, you know, if you want to get anywhere in the world, you, you know, you've got to start with getting a professional qualification. And his view was you either become um, a lawyer or an accountant. So uh, I trained to become an accountant. And, you know, it was, it was good because, you know, I did do a lot of rigorous training and that continued for quite a number of years. So it gave me a really good grounding in business. So I have, you know, pretty good understanding of how things work. 
bad advice because it made me do something that I'm not really all about. And uh, I guess later on in life, I found the things my true vocation and what I'm really passionate about. So it took me a little bit longer to get there. But you know, it's all about the journey, isn't it? And uh, and you do that. So I did what I what you might describe as the traditional route, the route that everybody expects you to go and do, and the one that I'm trying to disrupt everybody else in the world to ignore now and go and follow their own paths. <laughs> All right. So when you say journey and I say journey, they are two different things, which we are about to get into. So in 94, your now wife, uh, and I think you say her name, Nicola, is that right? Uh, Nicola, Nicola, yeah. Nicola. Okay. Tomato, tomato, right? We're on two different sides of the ocean here. I was going to say Nicola. Okay. So your now wife, uh, Nicola, Mm -hmm. entered your life and... You blink your eyes, you have three beautiful children, Bluebell, Columbus, and Willow, which, by the way, are the most amazing names I've ever heard in my life. Is <laughs> there you. any significance behind the names? Columbus is sort of standing out for me. <laughs> so there there kind of is. So the whole, um, so Bluebell came from, when, so when I used to do my fishing down in Devon, and I used to be sort of down near this, uh, down the coastline, in uh, around April, May time of year, you'd look up on the headland and the cliffs would be just full of bluebells. And um, it was just really poignant. And uh, we kind of just really liked the name. Columbus, we just thought it was a strong name. We didn't really know we were going to go and sail around the world at that point. So it was uh, maybe kind of a little bit prophetic. And uh, Willow, we just like. So the, yeah, the name, the name just appealed to us. Uh, Shakespeare says, what's in the name, right? Okay. Absolutely. So let's dig into that. So around 2009, you and your wife were kind of in a crummy place in your marriage. You're stressed, money issues, kids, you know, just all of the stuff that everybody deals with when they're, you know, starting out with three kids. And it sort of created this introspection. Can you place us where you were and tell us the story of when your brother-in-law told you about this family that sailed around the world? Yeah, totally. Well, actually, I said that we, we only had two children back then, actually. <laughs> so, ah, in 2009. Okay. so there's another twist in the story that comes after this. The, okay. But uh, yeah, 2009, I've be, been running my business, um, which was in uh, data analytics for about three or four years then. And the business was losing money. And you know, I, I, we, we figured out that I, I would have earned um, stacking more shelves at the local um, supermarkets, the local Walmart. You know, we we had arguments about money. We had arguments about you know not f- about feeling guilty about not spending enough time with the children because I was working 16, 18 hours a day. Um, Nicola was working and bringing up the young kids. And life was just really, really painful. And I guess to the outside world, you know, it probably looked okay. But, you know, we're there with the family, with young kids and, you know, running your own business. But on the inside, it just felt horrible. You know, we were asking ourselves the question, like, is this all there is to life? There must be more than this because it just felt like if I'm going to if we're going to do this for another 20 years, then, you know, there really wasn't much fun and joy. So it was the, yeah, the, 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 the catalyst for thinking about it differently was my brother-in-law telling us about this family who sailed around the world. And, you know, that just literally, just that, that just little sort of idea caught our imagination. And it was crazy for so many reasons. So the one thing we had in our favor is I'd sailed around the world before. So I did that in 2000. I did what was called the world's toughest yacht race and I'd circumnavigate it. So I did have quite a lot of experience sailing. But Nicola had only um, sailed or she had only been on a boat twice at that point and she'd been seasick both times. Didn't have the money. I mean, we couldn't even afford to buy a little rubber dinghy at that point, let alone a boat to go around the world. And um, yeah, no boat. And um, yeah, so all sorts of reasons why we shouldn't go and do it. But it was that idea that the future could look really different from where we were right then. That was the thing that caught our imagination. And I guess over the next six months, what we did is we started to sit down together and create a different narrative, a different story about how we wanted the future to turn out. Nicola always says, you know, most people end up living one centimeter away from your own faces. And the thing is, is to project out, you know, five years from now, what does that picture look like 
together. And lots of people do that on their own, but very few people, I think, do that together and create a shared narrative and a shared story. And that was kind of the starting point for us to say, you know, how does this look differently? And that was the thing that started to bring us together by focus on something that was more exciting than where we were right then. Who wanted the boat journey specifically? I know that you both wanted to change, but was it your backgrounds in having done this before that, you know, you sort of had a coaxer and say, honey, it's amazing. And this is going to be the thing that's going to change our life. Or was she just as, as on board? Okay. So, so this, this, this bit is really important. So if I had said, I want to go and get on the boat and sail around the world, all Nicola would have done was resisted and tell me all the reasons why she didn't want to. And I think lots of people say, this is what I want to do. And they try and persuade somebody else to come on their journey. And for a whole host of reasons, that doesn't work. So here's how we went about it. We did this exercise, which we call deep listening, where we shared what was really important to each other and what we both wanted to do in life. And we created a fresh piece of paper. And the only things that went on that new piece of paper were only things that we shared in common. Now, when we share this with people, the immediate reaction, the immediate fear is, what if we don't share anything in common? So people are fearful about going down this process and this route. But I have to say, having done this exercise now with hundreds and hundreds of people, there is always something because people always get together for a reason and you might have forgotten what those reasons were because they've been squashed down under bills, kids, work, whatever else. But there's always things and it's about lifting those things up again. For us, we only had three things in common back then. It was pretty it was pretty it was pretty thin. So we wanted to um, go and see the elephants in Africa. We wanted to go diving on the Great Barrier Reef and we wanted to go and see um, Carnival in Brazil. And that was the only thing that we talked about were those things that we shared in common. And that created excitement and energy. And you say, it's that thing you can't build on conflict. You can only build on shared things. And so the story around those three things grew and grew. And we looked at when we can go to those places, what time of year, how we get there. And then Netta eventually said, well, why don't we get a boat and go and do this? Whereas if I'd pushed the agenda onto her, she would have resisted. So it's about creating that shared narrative, only coming from a place of what you agree on in common. And, you know, I've done so many, so many, again, so many of the things with other people. And they say, but I really want this. And it's like, well, if you don't both want it, then you've got to let it go because you won't progress otherwise. And you kind of got to trust that some of these things may come back, but they may not. Um, and ended up every single thing that we both wanted in our lists came back into play because we just changed the energy in the whole situation. All right. My mind's going in four trillion directions. <laughs> so I'm going to try and keep this train on the tracks. What's interesting to me about this is at that time that you were considering doing this, Mm-hmm. And we're going to kind of just for a marker for people to keep a place in the story. But about five years before you took this trip, you made a decision that you were going to have a five-year plan and that you were going to tick away at whatever you needed to tick away, which we'll get into what those things were to get there. But to put this in context, like you alluded to earlier, you guys were not in the best position economically or relationally. And in fact, your business was struggling at the beginning of this five-year plan. So where do you think the idea to put your family first and create a business around that came from? So in other words, you had to create a business that funded this idea, which essentially is born out of, we want to put our relationship and our family first. Where did that come from? Kind of talk to that a little bit, that time in your life. Okay, so let's let's put the yeah, the chronology is helpful. So 2009 is when we came up with the idea to go and do this. And we gave ourselves five years to make the plan happen. So 2009 was when we had the idea. 2014 is when we said we were going to go and leave. And we created this vision statement, which was handwritten, and we put it on the, the wall in our kitchen. So every single person came into our house. It was the first thing they saw, and we told everybody that we're going to go and do this. 
Now, in my entrepreneurial life before, I'd always worked on the, the basis, I'm going to build a business up, sell it, or in five years' time, I'm going to sell it. Then I will have some money, and then I will go and do the things that are really important to me in life. And no matter how close I got to that five years, the five years, it was always five years, it kept moving further and further out. So by putting that fixed date in there of 2014, that had a really powerful psychological effect. Because we got to 2011, two years in, three years to go, and nothing had fundamentally changed in the business. And I thought I was doing things that changed stuff, but really, I was just tinkering around the edges, and I was not doing things that were changing the game. And because that five years had now become three years, it's like, okay, I need to think about this in a fundamentally different way. And that was when I started really immersing myself in learning, how do you grow a business um, so that it really scales fast? And then the initial model was, well, let's build it up and sell it within three years. And... As we started to get into 2012, and we're now two years away, the thinking became, well, how about we build this business up so that it can run without us, so that um, we can go off and do our sailing and the business will still be there. We don't have to sell it, but it's capable of running without us. So I guess the big shifts happened in that year, year two to year three, so 2012 in our world. And the crunch point for me with that was I was learning all these different techniques of how to turn an ordinary business into an extraordinary business. But I was driving things so, so hard that basically my team threatened to leave the business and uh, walk out just because I was being so, so driven. And that was the point where I said, okay, I've got to approach teamwork and leadership fundamentally differently. And I have to build on the strengths of everybody else. And beforehand, I thought, you know, how do I make myself brilliant? And I came to realize the role of a leader is to make everybody else brilliant rather than making yourself more brilliant. And so that, that was the shift. And then for the, the next two years after that, 2012, 2014, that's when we went through real rapid growth, not just in that first business, but we created two other businesses as well. But just by following that same principle of, you know, building it so it can run without us based on amazing people. All right. So let's stay in that zone for just a second. Just a couple of follow-up questions there. How often while you, we're going to have to chronologically bounce back and forth from the trip to five years before the trip. I don't know how else to do it, but how often while you were on the trip, did you check in with your business? So the first business, the data analytics business, I would dial in for monthly board meetings. So I would be uh, I would get the board papers, so I'd spend an hour or so, hour or two beforehand, and then I'd call in for two or three hours and then do a couple of follow-ups, and that would be it. So that was all for, for um, everything per month, So let's say a so day. literally three hours in a month, and that was it? Correct. Correct. How did you manage the... God, my, I wish I can. I wish I had two mouths right now. There's so many things I want to ask you. How did you, how did you manage the the anxiety that you you know most people right now can't go ten minutes without thinking or checking in on their business, let alone you know work three hours in a month. How did you manage the anxiety, and did that change over that period of time? So look, so, the, so the, the best question I've ever asked myself in my life is how do I create a business that can run without me? Um, the moment I asked that question, my brain started thinking in a different way. And, you know, I knew that at some point we would be in the middle of the ocean and an issue would come up with staff, with a customer, with, I don't know, some, something. And there would be this immediate thing. But being in the middle of the ocean, there would be nothing that I could do about it. So I realized the levers for me was to just, brill, to just build an incredible team of people and trust them to get on with whatever they had to deal with. Because I think most business owners, they trust their team so far. And then when they can see things aren't going wrong, they'll instantly try and jump in and try and fix it. And all the time your team know that you are likely to do that or able to do that, they won't fully own it and take responsibility for it. So it really is all about the, the culture 
of the business and getting people in the right roles where they're doing the things that they're absolutely brilliant at and then just trusting them to get on with that so they can they can go and do it. So the, the bottom line is just built an amazing team of people and we're very clear on the mission where the business was going, um, why we were in business, and we had a really clear set of values. So the culture went really, really deep as to, you know, how do we behave, how do we act? And um, that was the thing that enabled me to sort of just say, okay, here you go, guys, you run the business and just let me know, you know, once a month how it's going. So you were initially pushing them. They pushed back and they said, we're all going to leave you if you keep doing this. And you were pushing them because you had a giant goal and that's how you saw that you were going to achieve the goal. But then you learned that it was better to be able to build the team let them do their job and not go in and fix it because then they'll rely on you to go in and fix it. 100%. You've got it. And it's funny. I was talking to someone the other day and they said, look, I want to do what you've done, but what I need to do is get all the systems and processes in place and then tell the team how they're going to run the business and let them go and do it. And it's like, no, 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 that's the wrong way around. If you force stuff on people they don't want to do, the moment you're not there, they'll kick it out anyway. <laughs> so it's far better to co-create this stuff with the people in the business and the people in the team. And um, then they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll embrace it and adopt it. So it really is about engaging the different people in the, in the business rather than telling them what to do, which is where I came from beforehand. So. Okay. Were there any particular applications, software, systems that you use that were super helpful? In other words, did you have Evernote, Checklist, Slack, or anything that you implemented that really made a difference? Um, honestly, no. I mean, it was just, um, you know, we just communicated by, uh, by email. We used, um, Salesforce, the CRM system. Um, yep. but I think it was, um, no, just e- email and phone calls basically. So yeah, no, <laughs> no, no particular okay. technology. No, so. no, 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 That's, that's good because I, my, my brain is saying, well, what would be important to be able to, because I'm, I'm putting myself in your shoes and saying, if I were doing this, how would I do this? And I would rely on systems, checklists, procedures to make sure that they were followed. But I think what you're teaching me is to make sure that you hide, you have the right people in the right seats to do the job and then get out of their way and let them do the job. Absolutely right. One of my mentors used to say exactly those words to me, get out of your own way. You've got brilliant people, let them get on with it and, and do what they're best at. And we, we had two other businesses, which we set up and ran in exactly the same way. And we spent even less time in those businesses that, you know, we would just get an update email every month and um, they just tell us how it was going and you know what the numbers were. And it's like, great. Okay. So um, yeah, all, all about the people. Was it, uh, if you had to pick a key player in or a key position in each of the businesses that you've done, would you say that the key position was some level of management that made sure everything, you know, the trains operated on time? Different in different businesses. So the the, the bigger one, the... Um the data analytics business, I would say that I had probably four or five real A-grade players. And when we um, come on to this, we ended up selling that business um, whilst we're in the middle of the Pacific. And the reason we did is because we just had these brilliant people in, in play who were making things happen. So it wasn't just one, one brilliant person. It was a, a, a number of brilliant people, but just, just in the right roles. All right. Let's go back to the mission statement that you alluded to in 2014. You languaged that mission statement in a very specific way. It was in a tense of it already being done. Can you describe what that was like or what that sounded like and why it was done in the way that you did it? Great question as well. I'm just casting my mind back. It just seemed really natural to do it that way. And, uh, you know, I can recite it. You know, it's like on the 1st of August, 2014, we're setting sail as a happy, contented family, having easily created this amount of money. And we then went on to go and do it. And to get to that place, 
my wife and I, we came up with different versions of it and it was all handwritten stuff. And we would, um, yeah, we created, I don't know, goodness knows how many different versions of this over that six month um, period. But it was that absolute statement of intent. And the most powerful thing about it was the fact that it was co-created. It had both of us in there. We dated it, we signed it. And we just said, you know, that is the thing that's going to happen. And we both believed that it was going to happen. It was, you know, it wasn't just this is a nice to have. It was this is going to happen come hell or high water. And the whole thing was, you know, we made rods for our backs because we told the kids that this is what we're going to go and do. And we fired up their imaginations and got them to think about where, where we were going to be, what we were going to go and do. And, you know, once we'd made that commitment to our kids, there was no way that we, you know, just imagine the conversation. I'm sorry, kids, we've been rubbish. We haven't been able to get the money together. The idea is cancelled. This thing we've been talking about for five years. So it was literally going to happen. And, you know, everybody doubted us and everybody told us we were crazy, not just because of the sailing itself, but lots of people said, you'll never be able to make a business work like that. It's just not possible. Nobody's been able to do that before. And um, it's that thing. Once you believe you can do something, um, then you go and find a way. I was thinking like that thing with Roger Bannister, isn't it? Everyone said you couldn't run the four minute mile. And then the year afterwards, what, 30 people did it. And then 500 people yeah. the following year. And high, so on. high school kids, high school yeah. kids did it that year. Yeah, exactly. There you go. So it's, um, um, but it's just cracking that 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 belief set around it. Um, but the yeah, the mission statement was just it was an absolute statement of intent. And the I used to do this exercise every morning, come downstairs, and I would just close my eyes and I would just visualize us seeing all those different things as they were happening. And so just you know created all in, in my imagination first before it actually happened in reality. So. Can you describe how Maxwell Maltz's theater of the minds informed your, you know, your practice of doing that in the morning? So Maxwell Maltz, Psycho-Cybernetics, probably one of the most influential books in my world. And, you know, he explains in that book the whole process of your psychology, your conscious and your subconscious so clearly, so well. Um, It's the book that I give to all my friends and I say, look, just just read the book. Just go and do what he says in that. And that whole thing with the theater in your mind, it's for me, it's um it's just burning it into your subconscious. It's creating that excitement. And you know, some mornings you go and do it and your mind drifts off and you go off to different places, but you keep coming back to it and you keep fleshing out the story. Yeah, you you, you see you see it all long, long before it happens. So yeah, very, very poor influence. There's two things that I'm learning here that are, if I had to like chunk it down and tell me if I got this right. One is because you asked yourself the question, how do I create a business that can run without me? And you set the stakes high enough where you were going to be gone for a year, literally on the ocean and couldn't run the business. You had two things happening at the same time. One was you you set a goal where you would not physically be able to be there, which forced you to actually create a business that had to and needed to run completely without you. Exactly. exactly. Okay. Okay. Um, I get seasick, so I don't know how I'm going to do this, but we're going to have to, we're going to have to keep, uh, <laughs> we're going to have to keep going here. All right. So now you also thought about potential problems that could arise while you were sailing and you even went as far to mitigate those problems as becoming ship doctors. Can you sort of unpack how you viewed this, you know, worst case scenario plan that you deployed? Yeah, no, of course. So the the whole thing was as we were thinking about this. Sure, we looked at the um, the things we wanted to do and why we wanted to do it and why it was so important to us, but we also looked at all the things that uh, we needed to consider. And, you know, lots of people told us reasons why we shouldn't do it. And the things like pirates, things like uh, what if a medical situation arises? What if, um, you know, something happens to the boat and you sink? All these different things. And rather than just sort of, you know, getting crossed and pushing back and discounting those, we took every single thing of those really seriously. And we wrote them all down on a piece of paper. 
because we knew if we tried to tackle all of those one by one, or sorry, if we tried to tackle them all at the same time, we would have been overwhelmed, our brains would have been fried, and we would have been stuck in that sort of whole tyranny of the how do we do this stage. Because the moment you set any big goal, both your mind and everybody else's minds will say, well, you can't do it because this, 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 and this. So we created this, this piece of paper with all these different things on it to consider and then literally started to go through those one by one saying, how do we get comfortable with this risk, with this issue, and what are the things that we need to do? So the medical one, which you, you mentioned, was, you know, that was quite a, quite a big one. So, you know, we'd done a tiny bit of first aid training in the past. And we looked at our route around the world, where we were going to be going. So we saw where there were medical facilities. And we also saw where there were not medical facilities, primarily in the middle of the ocean. And so, yeah, we made the decision to both train to become ship's doctors. So it's a 10-day medical training course um, here in the UK. It's the most advanced medical training you can do in the UK outside of becoming a doctor or a nurse. So it's really intensive. I mean, the reality is 10 days is still not a huge amount. It's enough to scare you <laughs> that you always want to know where there's a doctor who's, who's near you. But then we loaded the boat up and we had like thousands of dollars worth of medical equipment on board and drugs and you know, all the different things that we might need. And we had a, a satellite phone with you know uh, permanent access so we can get radio medical advice from a qualified doctor in the UK at any point in time. So literally, we just thought through every single thing and said, okay, what will we do in this scenario? What would we do in this scenario? Um, so that was kind of how we approached it um, with sort of real rigor. I mean, you mentioned it, my, my, my background, I was an accountant and my wife's background, she was an attorney. So both of us are used to sort of being detail-orientated and managing risk. So that was the same approach that we took to that. And it definitely wasn't a question of, you know, sort of um, ignoring those risks. It was taking them very seriously. Let's talk about your relationship with your wife at that time. So things things were not great. Things were rocky. And now you made the decision to cram each other up in a boat. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it seems crazy, right? <laughs> for, a, for a year, right? Two years. For, oh, for two years. Okay, for two years. So I guess there's two questions here. One, was there any fear or anxiety that you had about what if we kill each other and you know this becomes <laughs> a Natalie Wood situation where somebody's throwing somebody off the boat? Yeah, yeah. Or was it, a strong belief that I just know that this is going to help our relationship and make it better? Or was it just, let's just hope for the best here? So what was remarkable in that five-year period of working towards this goal, because we created this energy, we created this shared momentum and a reason why we were going to go and do something. Our reason why was to create magical life-changing experiences for us and our children. That whole shift from being individually focused on our own careers and money to being family focused meant that we started working together in a whole different way. And, you know, I won't pretend it was easy. There were times when it was really hard. I'm talking about the five-year build-up period. And, you know, we, we, we'd hit a roadblock and then we would have to figure out the skills, so the communication skills of how do we get things back on track. And we both grew and learned so much about relationships, about communication, about how do you do stuff together in that five-year period that by the time we got to go on the boat, honestly, the thought about um, throwing each other over the side or anything like that, that wasn't really a consideration. We were focused on you know, the, the, the obvious challenges of you know being on the boat, navigating oceans, seas, and, and those sorts of things. So the, the whole dynamic in the relationship had changed before we'd even set sail because of what we'd set out to do and how we'd gone about it. So um, that really transforms things. But, you know, but the other side of that is that once we'd set sail, I'd gone from working crazy hours in the business to now being 24-7 with, with Nicola and the three kids. And I often joked in that first 
three to six months, the best thing about what we were doing was spending 24-7 with my wife and kids. The hardest thing about what I was doing was spending 24-7 with my wife and kids because suddenly we'd gone from one extreme to another. So it did take a period of adjustment. But after that sort of three to six month period, we really got into a rhythm of, of routine and life at sea. And it was utterly magical and you know everything we planned for. All right, let's talk about the day-to-day at sea. So, you know, it's you, your wife, and two children, because the third one was not on the ship with you, yeah? Yeah, so so the third one was, so yes, the third one was, so we had um, the little one in 2012. So when Ah, we left, the kids were nine, seven, and two. So we had had all three kids when we left. I have a four-year-old right now, and the thought of having a (laughs) uh, two-year-old, it's so... I live in a high rise in uh, in Atlanta, and uh, you know I'm terrified of her going near the balcony. I can't even imagine, <laughs> you know what what this was like. Okay, so let's let's talk about the uh, the day to day. So I have no idea what a typical day would be like on the ship, but I guess two questions. One is how long of a period of time were you at sea where you were not in a port? And I guess the second part of that is what did you do with those 24 hours while you were at sea? What was a typical day like? Yeah, okay. So just picking up on the point of insanity and taking um, a two-year-old on the boat, that was um, you know, a huge consideration, um, obviously. And the way we addressed that is in the five years beforehand, we spent a lot of time um, with the older two and us creating the routines and the habits about how you do stuff on board. So, for example, everybody wore a life jacket all the time, adults and children, no exceptions. Anybody comes up on deck, you're clipped on with a lifeline. And we just created those rituals and the habits so that they became ingrained for everybody. So that the little one, then the other two, um, were making sure that she always had her life jacket on and was always clipped on. Because it's the rituals and the same thing in the business, right? It's rituals and habits about how you do anything that, make, that makes it work. So that was the, the preparation. But in terms of the actual sea stuff, so the longest we'd be at sea for was um, was three weeks at a time, and um, that would that would be about three thousand miles of, of sailing. You know, we we so the longest passages for us were always the easiest ones, and we kind of get into a routine of how do we do things. So my wife and I, we would be um, three hours on, three hours off. Um, so there's always someone who is awake. And um, keeping an eye on the on the outside, making sure there's no other ships around, making sure the sails are set properly, making sure the navigation is good, we're going in the right direction. So there's always someone um, on watch 24 hours a day. And then during the day, we would do um, six one watch of six hours on, one watch of six hours off. So um, I would, um, for example, do the schooling from um, 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. for that six-hour period. So I'd do the sailing, I'd do the schooling, I would make breakfast and lunch, and Nicola would um, sleep in that six-hour off period. And then from 2 p.m. till 8 p.m., then Nicola would um, be on watch and I would get a longer sleep. And then overnight, we'd go into the three-on, three-off. So we just developed this yeah, routine, yeah, schooling in the morning. Whoever's on watch is always um, yeah, doing the navigation, making sure the boat is okay, and uh, you know, making sure that, that, that we're safe. So it just developed into a very easy routine. And for us, yeah, the longest passages were always the easiest. And after three weeks at sea, if someone said, you've got to continue for another two weeks, it'd be great. Okay, let's go and do it. The short passages of one or two days, you just start to get into the routines and then you stop. Yeah, so that, that's kind of how it works. Did it feel like your brain started to change? In other words, you know, right now, I'm sure your day-to-day is very different, right? You are, you're a keynote speaker, you travel, you know, you're running businesses, you're probably... You know, you probably, I'm, I'm making assumptions here, but I'm, I'm assuming that you've got a smartphone and you're connected just like we all are. <laughs> you know, when you're two weeks at sea with your kids, you're not. So, you know, was there this, I, I guess the question is, did you tap into a part of yourself that you didn't even know existed? So this is one of the most important things I think that came out of the whole thing that's relevant for our society today. We were basically off the grid for two years. 
So we didn't have, we had smartphones, but clearly out at sea, there's no signal. And rather than the, um, you know, we all get addicted to the stuff coming through on our smartphones now, and, you know, I'm as bad as anybody else right now. But at sea, we didn't have that. So what did we do? We ended up sitting around the saloon table and we would have three meals together. We'd talk, we'd read, we'd play games. We really got to know each other as people. And that was where a lot of the real magic happened, just getting to know each other and appreciate appreciate each other as human beings. Now, here's the interesting thing. So after we, we sailed... We then decided to come and um, spend part of our time in the States. So we keep the boat in San Francisco. And every year we do an expedition. So we came back for one year. We were mostly in the UK. And then last summer we sailed San Francisco to Canada and back, so about 2,000 miles at sea. Now, in the year that we were back, all of us kind of got back into the digital world with iPads and iPhones and so on. And suddenly there's all the stuff that's coming through. We get back on the boat. And within two days, the smartphones had just been put away and suddenly we're interacting together as a family and we're doing all those amazing things together, the books, the reading, the playing games and so on, because it's just been disconnected. And I have to say, it's such a wonderful place to be, but all of us and I think in the world today, we all you know, suffer from this, the, the communication overloads from, from our phones and so on. And I think it's a really healthy thing to do to go and disconnect and just get away from that all. How old are the kids now? So they are now 13, 11, and 6. How has this impacted their life? Yeah. So they've all gone back into... Um, so one of the questions we had beforehand was, you know, that you'll never get them settled. You'll never get them back into school again. They have all settled back into the year they would have been in as if we hadn't been away. And they are thriving at school. They're confident. Um, they're getting on with it. They're, you know, worldly wise. I always describe my, my little one, my six-year-old, as my leader on the pitch. And um, I came up with a phrase yesterday that um, for one of my, my talks, and I was talking about it to her. And I said, shall I tell this to, uh, to Bluebell, our 13-year-old? She said, no, I wouldn't bother. She wouldn't. She won't be interested. And I thought about it. Yeah, she's exactly right. <laughs> and you know, she has so much uh, wisdom. And uh, I think it's because just being exposed to different uh, experiences and being around uh, different uh, people. So we met some remarkable people as well, who um, you know clearly influenced all, all three kids. So uh, you know, they've come out of it well adjusted and uh, you know curious to learn things and and, and enjoying life. You know, they they asked the astro the astronauts when they went to the moon. Um, a lot of them suffered depression after they came back, mm -hmm. and you know, a lot of that had to do with okay, I've been to the moon. What's next? Is there a little bit of that sort of sentiment for you right now? You know, with either going, how do I top that? What do I do now? Great question as well. The so look, everyone always talks about this as you know, you have the adventure of a lifetime. I, I reject that language. Here's why. So when I did the Around the World race in 2000, I remember coming back from that and three months afterwards sitting at the bottom of my dad's garden with a bottle of whiskey because you have an amazing high, you hit the low, exactly what you said with the astronauts, right? So we knew right from the get-go that we were going to build into this what's going to happen next, so in our vision statements, which is in, in the book, you can um, see, you know, when we return, we're going to return as a happy, passionate family, and this is going to lead on to new adventures. And we didn't know what they were back then, but we knew there was going to be something. This is going to be a stepping stone to new things. So we have the boat still, and we still go off for, for adventures. When he came back about seven weeks ago from sailing San Francisco to Mexico and back, and, you know, we have reinvented ourselves um, with the mission that we're working on now. So honestly, I'd say there's been literally no dip at all. It's just been a stepping stone onto the next thing in our world because it wasn't the adventure of a lifetime. It was a stepping stone to more things. And now we're turning around what we've learned and sharing that with other people, which I think is perhaps the most fulfilling, rewarding thing that I've ever done. So, um, you yeah, know, it's... Mm, it's okay, got it. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, so basically now your next level up is what you're doing. 
Ah, okay. That makes perfect sense because I was I, I was just envisioning you hot air ballooning around the world, you and Richard Branson. Okay. Okay, I'm with it. All right. So let's we do, uh, we do have some of those things coming up actually, but um but you know, the, actually the, the the purpose and the mission is so fulfilling that uh, it, it wouldn't need that necessarily. Well, the reason why I wanted to have you on this show is because the podcast is about uh, literally working hard and playing hard. So mm-hmm. the first half of the show, we talk about, you know, the kind of work that entrepreneurs do and, you know, get business hacks and help people to mm-hmm. become a more efficient entrepreneur. And then the second part of the show, we talk about play. And it's always the most difficult part of the show because hard driving entrepreneurs are generally not the same type of people that like to do things outside of work. They're very, very work centric. And you are probably the only guest, maybe one or two others who are close, that has, I don't know, maybe if I had to tip the scale, I kind of feel like play is a little bit bigger for you than work. But at at best, you're pretty even with both. But I'd like to ask you a little bit uh, before we wrap up here about sort of like the areas that are in your life now that are outside of work that sort of, you know, are a little bit more around play. So what is a typical Saturday morning like for you now? So um, I do a lot of running. So, um, you know, early morning run is always good for me. Sunday morning, the kids will come and charge in and, um, you know, try and, uh, you know, want to play games and do stuff. Probably take one of the kids, one or two of the kids um, swimming. So, you know, fairly family focused stuff. You know, my phone is always there. And I know that whenever I look in it, there will be stuff to respond to and uh, deal with. But I think, you know, the, the whole family first thing, you know, someone said to me, you only get 18 summers with your kids before they grow up and leave home, right? And, you know, there becomes a time when they don't want to spend time with you anymore. So it's making the most of that now. I spent time two weeks ago with a lady who's a palliative care nurse. So I don't know if that these have the same language in, in, in States. Yeah. Yep. Same one. So, and she said she's, she's been there present with, with over 200 people when they've died and talking to them beforehand. It's that whole thing, which we've all heard, right? Nobody ever regrets. And nobody ever says, you know, I wish I'd spent more time working. It's always family stuff that comes up. So, you know, our whole mission is, you know, family first. And for us, That was not just good from a family perspective, but it was also incredibly good from a work perspective because it meant that a united Nicola and I and unleashed all this insane amount of energy that we were now on the same page. Again, I've lost track of the number of entrepreneurs I know who've got failed marriages because they're so focused on their business and they neglect family and relationships. And they, they, they always regret them later on. So I think it's yeah getting that balance. So Saturdays is yeah, family time. Inevitably, there will be a little work stuff that creeps in because I can't help myself because I love what I do. And um, so I will you know, deal with things and respond to things. But it's family first and then work second. Yeah, two uh, two things on that note. One is uh, Jesse Itzler once said to me that. Um, uh, do you know who Jesse Itzler is? I the name does that sound familiar to you? Uh, do you know the uh, Do you know Sarah Blakely who owns Spanx? Yes, of course. Yeah, have yes, you heard yes, of Spanx? Yes. Okay, her husband is Jesse Itzler, okay. and uh, he started um, Net uh, NetJets and ah. uh, sold that, and then uh, created uh, Zico Water <laughs> and uh, sold that. Um, so one of the things he said, which was really interesting, sort of what you just said about, you know, you have about 18 summers with your children. If you, if you look at sort of the palliative, uh, nurse conversation we just had, you know, if you're, I'm 52, so let, you know, let's round it up and say 50 years old. You know, the average person lives to 76. That means I have about 26 summers, mm-hmm. you know, left in my life and that's it. And he went on further to say, you know, if your parents are, you know, living in another state or another country or or whatever, and they're 70, and you have, you know, if you see them once a year or twice a year, you may have six to 10 times left that you'll ever see your parents before there. And so you can keep doing this math and you start realizing it. And the other thing that somebody said along the lines of what you just said, which was interesting, is my family gets my best and everyone else gets the rest. And I really loved that statement. And I thought you might like those. I love that. You know what? It's funny. The, the, I remember when I was doing when I was in the really painful stage. Nicola would say, "You know, by Friday night, all I'm left with is the pith of the lemon. There's literally nothing left of you because <laughs> you've mm-hmm. given everything to work." And it's like, yeah, there's something that's just wrong about that story. So uh, I love what you just said. <laughs> A couple of more questions on play. Mm-hmm. 
If you could only go to one restaurant before you die, random question, where would it be? Where would your last meal be? Sydney Fish Market. I had the best oysters and the best sashimi ever in the world there. Oh, I love that. Okay. If you had all the time and the money in the world to pursue a hobby or a recreational activity, what would it be and why? You know what? One of the things I started doing, I did some speaking gigs in Hawaii last year and I learned to surf there. And it's something I've not done very much of, but I would love to go and do more surfing. Well, I am moving to California specifically to learn how to surf huh. uh, next August. That's uh, that's my goal. So you can come out and I'll uh, hopefully by then I'll be able to teach you. That sounds awesome. I'll hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> when you come to the end of your life and you're lying on your deathbed, what would you regret most if you didn't do? Oof, you know what? Can I, sh- can I share a short story? Of course. Take as much time as you need. So when I did the uh, the round the world um, yacht race in uh, 2000, the guy who arranged it, uh, ran it all, was a gentleman called Sir Che Blythe, who was the first guy to sail around the world the wrong way. And I remember he asked me the question. He said, you know, Casper, there'll come a time when you're looking down at your toes. And he said, if you look at your toes and you ask the question, have I done everything that I want to do in life? He said, if the answer is no, you're going to be pretty brassed off. So stop messing around, work out what you want to do and go and get on with it. And that's basically been how I've lived my life ever since the year 2000, to work out exactly what I want, to not worry about what other people say and just to pursue it and go for it. So um, I don't think I'd regret anything. I'd just go and do it. So, oh, That was beautiful. All right. So we're going to wrap up with um, quick rapid fire round. Answer these as quickly or as slowly as you like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind rounds. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Um, connecting people, telling what's and, one of the th- and telling stories. Connecting and telling stories. Okay, what's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Not impacting enough people in the world, and not really driving as hard as I can to get the messages out there because I think these are powerful messages. What keeps you up at night? Usually, my eleven-year-old uh, when he comes downstairs and says, "I'm awake, I'm bored. Can you come and talk to me?" <laughs> <laughs> what do people never ask you, but you wish they did? You know, I think the most important thing that um, I really uh, think impacts the world is this whole thing about the shared narrative. And I love the fact you've asked me about that and we've spent time exploring that. I wish more people would ask about that and be open about that side of things because the whole relationship side of things, it's not just home life relationship, it's work relationships too. And that real deep listening piece is such a powerful piece. So that's a message I really want to get out there. So I wish everyone would ask about that. What's the one thing you want to get better at? That's a good question. I think the the thing that came up to my mind was um, just appreciating and understanding the different things that everybody, everybody has those one or two unique skills and just getting even better at just seeing the brilliance that each person has. Other than Psycho-Cybernetics, what book have you reread the most? The One Thing by Gary Keller, all about focus. Oh, so good. Speaking of the one thing, what is the one thing that you own and probably should throw out, but never will? <laughs> I have, um, my mum will probably answer this question quite well for me. I've got quite a lot of fishing rods, which I'm unable to throw out because they've all got memories. If you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for, nothing that you speak about, it could be on anything you like to do or have a passion for, what would it be? So one of my favorite subjects in the world is influence. And I talk about it indirectly, but I'm just absolutely fascinated by that whole area. So I would love to talk more about that. Have you read Cialdini's books? I have, yes. Well, only the first one. Okay. His next one, Persuasion, is even better. I just love that guy. Okay. Last question. The last question, we're going to change it up a little bit. What one question do you want to ask me? What's the thing that anyone can do that will be most helpful for you? In any specific area? In any specific area. This is a great... Nobody's ever asked me that one. What's the one thing that people can do for me? This is going to sound like a sort of a bullshit answer, but it's really, it's really how I feel in my heart. They can wake up to the fact that their clock is ticking. And we only get so many days, tomorrow is not promised. 
and really, really, really get clear about what you want to do so that if you didn't wake up tomorrow morning, you would rest your head comfortably knowing that you did the best you could to live your best life and you stopped focusing all of your energy on work. That would be, that would be, that would be a gift to me. Wow. I, I closed my eyes. You were just saying that. I hope everybody listened to this. That, that was really, wow. Thank you. Yeah, you, you are so welcome. So do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? My only uh, ask would be um, following on from your cue. Put your family first. Work out what's the shared narrative of what you want to go and do with your family and uh, put that story front and center and then reverse engineer your life to meet those goals because there is nothing more important. Amazing. Casper, you have an awesome name. Your children have an (laughs) awesome name. You have an awesome story. And that's a lot of awesome in one (laughs) sentence. But thank you so much for being a part of this. You're very welcome. I've absolutely loved this and uh, amazing questions. Amazingly perceptive. Thank you so much. It's been awesome too. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.